Good. Uh, so I'm wondering uh, if any of you here are suffering, uh, I think the, the experts would call it, uh, you're suffering from compassion fatigue. You've heard that term before. What's compassion fatigue? Uh, one definition says uh, it's the inability to react sympathetically to a crisis or disaster uh, because of overexposure to previous crises or disasters. Or another definition, uh, it's indifference to charitable appeals on behalf of suffering people uh, experienced as a result of the frequency or number of such appeals. I wonder if you can relate to that. I, I certainly can. It's, it's not that I don't believe in the cause. It's not that I don't want to help the victims of that disaster or famine or war. It's not that I don't want to help the, the poor or the homeless or the oppressed or the victims. I want to help those people, and sometimes I do help those people, uh, but often I, I see their plight, I hear their plea, and I'm unmoved. I feel little or no compassion. Over time, it's like I've become so overwhelmed by the needs around me uh, that I, to be perfectly honest, I just need a rest. I'm tired. So I've just kind of shut down. Now, that's kind of physical needs. I, I think it's even easier to feel that, uh, like that about those who are suffering spiritually. People who are spiritually poor and lost and, and needy. I mean, at least the, the needs of the child on the screen are, are, are kind of obvious. The needs of the homeless person you work by on the streets, they're, they're tangible, they're, they're right there. Not so with people's spiritual needs, right? And, and even if we are aware of their spiritual need, uh, their, their needs just seem too big, right? That, that person would never become a Christian. They're overwhelming, right? So when the pastor gets up and talks about mission again, we're unmoved. Perhaps a bit indifferent, maybe even frustrated because we're just tired and we need a rest. In that context, we come to today's passage where we see the Lord Jesus' deep compassion for the lost. How can we, as a people who so often have this compassion fatigue, we're tired, we just need a rest, how can we share in the compassion of Christ? That's what we're exploring today. I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we, uh, we confess that so often we are uh, a bit hard-hearted, we're indifferent, uh, perhaps overwhelmed when it comes to the needs of those around us uh, who, don't know, uh, uh, who don't know Christ. Our Father, we ask today that as we look at your word, you would pour out your spirit and that you would uh, move in our hearts, stir up in our hearts, or refresh our hearts uh, with a deep compassion for the lost. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, you might remember where we finished last week. Uh, with the, the Pharisees accused Jesus of being uh, that his ministry was empowered not by God, but by Satan. Right, so in verse 34, they said, uh, it's by the power of the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Right? A, a horrible accusation. Uh, but look how Jesus responds in the first verse of today's passage. Verse 35, uh, three chapters later in chapter 12, uh, Jesus gives a more full response. You might be familiar with it. It's in other Gospels as well. Uh, Jesus explains that, uh, that if his power to cast out demons was really from Satan, uh, then Satan would be working against himself. And if that was the case, uh, Satan's kingdom would be divided against itself uh, and it wouldn't stand. Uh, but here, look, in verse 35, immediately, straight away, Jesus doesn't say anything at all to his accusers. Right? He's resolutely focused on his mission. 
In verse 35, Matthew says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Right, sometimes, not, not all the time, right? but, but uh, sometimes the most effective way to respond to people who accuse you or criticise you or slander you is not to uh, engage in a, in a process of defending yourself, but to focus on living out the mission God has called you to. Now, that's what Jesus does here. Right in Matthew 4, verse 23, Matthew summarised Jesus' mission in these words. He said, He went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Well, you notice the similarity, right? It's almost exactly the same as what he says here in verse 35. The point being that despite his crickets, despite our critics, uh, despite their, their false accusations, Jesus remains focused on his mission. He knows what his father has called him to, called him to, his mission, uh, which involves three main things. You see them there? First, it involves teaching in the synagogues. Uh, In a second, we're going to see that Jesus sees the crowds and he sees that they're uh, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Why are they so harassed and helpless? It's because their leaders haven't been teaching them the Bible well. So they're all over the shop. Jesus knows that. So he goes to the Jewish synagogues and he teaches them the Bible. That's the first thing he does. Uh, He also proclaims the good news of the kingdom. The word proclaim there is the same as the word uh, that would describe what a king's herald would do. A king would send out their heralds to to declare his decrees, to announce his edicts, to proclaim his victories in battle. In the same way, Jesus is like a herald. Jesus, the Messiah, God's promised king, uh, is heralding, he's proclaiming that his coming is is good news, the best news. But because he has come to establish and rule over God's kingdom. What have we seen in these chapters? God's kingdom is a place where you can experience forgiveness and and healing and peace. Restoration of individuals and communities. That's good news. Jesus is proclaiming that good news. He's teaching in the synagogues. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And he's healing every disease and sickness. He's healing actual physical diseases. That's important, right? Because I said last week that Jesus' power to heal sicknesses uh, is one of the key proofs that he is the Messiah, that he is this promised king. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, prophesies that when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened. I remember we saw that last week, right? The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Uh, The lame will leap like a deer. Remember the paralyzed man at the start of chapter 9, leaping around, right? The the mute tongue will shout for joy. We just saw that, the demon-possessed man uh, who who couldn't speak. His tongue was loosed. We've seen pretty much all of Isaiah 35 just in chapter 9. You see what Matthew's doing? He's driving home his point that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God's promised king, the one who's come to establish God's kingdom. So he heals every sickness and disease. Jesus himself in chapter 11, uh, when John the Baptist is in prison, he's got some doubts about who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? Jesus himself quotes those verses from Isaiah 35. Tell John, this is what's going on. I'm the Messiah, Jesus is saying. Uh, But even though the physical sickness is important, of course, I said last week uh, that Matthew's primary concern in in recording all these miracles is not to show us that Jesus has the power to heal us physically, but that he has the power to heal us spiritually. 
Remember, he's the ultimate doctor who's able to offer us forgiveness of sins, acceptance into God's kingdom. He's able to heal our deepest sickness, the, the, the sickness of our sin, and, and restore us into relationship with God. So that's verse 35. Right In the face of uh, uh, false accusations, in the face of fierce criticism, Jesus remains resolutely focused on his mission. How does he do that? What, what kind of motivates him to do that? Well, it's his deep compassion for the lost. That's what we see in the, in the rest of the passage. Uh, in fact, in verses 36 to 38, we see that there are, uh, are really two main ingredients to Christ's compassion for the lost. Uh, the first is, uh, in verses 36 and 37, uh, a supernatural awareness of the condition of the lost. I say supernatural, particularly for us, because this awareness isn't something that comes naturally. We're not naturally aware of where people are at with regard to their relationship with God. Right? We've got to pray that God would open our eyes so we can actually see people as they are before God. So we can see the condition of the lost. Where are they at in God's eyes apart from Christ? That's the work of the Spirit. So first, I want you, I'm praying the Spirit would be doing its work today to help us have this awareness of the condition of the lost. First, in, in verse 35, uh, verse 36 rather, notice the size of the lost. Matthew says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Uh, historians estimate that at this point of time in Galilee, uh, there would have been about three million people. Now, it's not that Jesus could see all three million at once. Of course he couldn't. Uh, but the point is, as he's walking through Galilee, going about his ministry, he could see a whole lot of people, masses of people, crowds of people. And because he sees them and they're lost, harassed and helpless, he's filled with compassion. It's worth noting that the word compassion there isn't just some soppy feeling. It's actually related to the word for intestines, right? for, for bowels. Now, that, that might seem a bit odd, but the point is that when Jesus sees these crowds, it's agonizing for him. It's gut-wrenching. You know that feeling? It makes him feel sick in the pit of his stomach. That's what this compassion is. And if you're a Christian, this same Jesus who feels this compassion lives in you. In Galatians 2, uh, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. How, how is it that Christ lives, us, lives in us? If you're a Christian, it's by the power of his Spirit. Uh, so in Romans 8, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the, in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, Paul says, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Right? You see what Paul's saying? He's saying when you become a Christian, spiritually speaking, you're united with Christ. You're like one flesh with Christ by faith. Your old life was crucified with Christ. You died with him on the cross. And now you've been raised with Christ to live a new life. And here in Romans 8, he's saying uh, that to, to help you to live that life, God has filled you with his spirit, who is the actual presence of Christ in you. And so if you're a Christian, this same Jesus who experiences deep compassion for the crowds of lost people in Galilee, that same Jesus lives in you by the, by the power of his spirit. 
So let me urge you to pray today that by the power of God's Spirit, you would see the size of the lost, the crowds of lost people around us, that you'd be filled with compassion. Uh, Last week, I shared some stats about the city of uh, Darabin. Uh, But in Melbourne as a whole, uh, there's currently about four and a half million people, including all the kind of outer suburbs and so on. But optimistically, uh, 2.5% of those people, about 112,000, are what you might call Bible-believing evangelical Christians. 112,000. So what does that mean? It means that as we sit here today, in Melbourne alone, there are well over 4 million people who are spiritually lost. There's crowds of lost people. Crowds, masses. We have to ask our God to help us to see that, to open our eyes so, so we can see the, the sheer size of the lost. A second, we've also got to feel the suffering of the lost. Have a look. When, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Right? Jesus doesn't just see the crowds. Sometimes we see people in need, don't we? Like, but Jesus doesn't just see the crowds, he feels their suffering. And as he feels their suffering, he's filled with compassion. Uh, I had lunch the other day with, with a, a group of people from uh, a group of really quite mature Christians. Uh, they were wonderful people. Uh, many of them were leaders in their churches. Uh, I've got to say, as we shared lunch together, I was a little bit shocked by the way they described uh, people in our city who are spiritually lost. All sorts of words were flying around. Uh, things like, our community is increasingly evil, it's perverted, it's wicked, it's demonic. Now, on one level, those things are true, right? I, I get that. But I'm not sure they reflect the most Christ-like attitude towards the lost. No doubt there's a place for lamenting uh, sin in our society. Uh, there's, there's a place, certainly, for calling evil and wickedness for what they are. Uh, but what about compassion for the lost? Where does that fit in? I don't think we realise just how amazing Christ's compassion is because when we see people in their sin... Uh, most often, uh, sorry, uh, I should say, uh, sorry, yeah, when we see people in their sin, uh, most often, like my brothers and sisters at that lunch, uh, we get irritated or frustrated or angry. We judge or condemn them, right? But because we base our compassion on whether we think someone's lovable or good or acceptable. Right? Lots of compassion for the, the young child on the screen, but less compassion for the homeless drug addicted person. When we see the lost, we're very good at seeing their badness, their sin. The picture the Bible paints is more complex than that. According to the Bible, all of us are a complex mix of good, bad, sad and dumb. Those are my categories. I think they're biblical. Good, bad, sad and dumb. We're good because we're all created in the image of God. We're precious. There's goodness. We're bad because we've all rejected God in our sin. We're sad because we've all been knocked around and wounded in various ways as we've lived in this broken world. And we're dumb because we just make a whole lot of unwise and foolish decisions. Good, bad, sad and dumb. When Christ sees these crowds, he does see their badness. 
Right, he's not just a, a lovey-dovey, soft kind of like he, he sees their batters. He knows that most of them are sinners who need to repent. But unlike the Jewish leaders earlier in the chapter, he doesn't simply condemn them because he also sees their goodness. They're precious creations in the image of God. He sees their sadness, that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You see, Christ's compassion is is not based on how lovely or acceptable or good we are, but on how lovely and acceptable and good he is. So he sees the the sadness of these crowds, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, In Numbers uh, chapter 27, verse 17, uh, Moses prays, he's nearly the end of his uh, life, uh, and he prays that God would raise up a successor so that the, the, uh, God's people wouldn't be like a sheep without a shepherd. In 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 17, the prophet Micaiah predicts uh, the death of King Ahab, saying, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel, Ezekiel delivers a scathing critique of all Israel's leaders, right? They're shepherds. A bunch of shepherds who are only concerned about caring for themselves, not the flock, not the people of God. And as a result, Ezekiel says, the sheep of Israel are scattered over the whole earth and no one searches or looks for them. You see why Jesus chooses these words? He's saying the leaders of Israel are no better in my day. Mostly they regard these crowds, the the, the common people, as being a nuisance. As being, an ignorant, as being ignorant, as being only worthy of God's judgment. And so instead of compassionately seeking them out and bringing them back to God, uh, they, they leave them harassed and helpless and burdened and scattered from God. By contrast, of course, Jesus is the good shepherd. You can read about that in John chapter 10. Uh, the shepherd who in his great compassion uh, will go out and, and seek for even one lost sheep. One sheep that's scattered. The shepherd who in his great compassion uh, will will be judged and condemned for his sheep in their place rather than judging and condemning his sheep. Uh, So that's the size of the lost. He sees crowds of lost people Uh, and the suffering of of the lost. They're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, We've also got to see the destiny of the lost. In verse 37, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, uh, but the workers are few. Uh, Most people read that verse and they see it uh, purely in positive terms. So the rhetoric's something like, uh, there's a massive harvest out there, right? Masses of people uh, who who are just ready to be saved. So all we need is is a whole bunch more workers just to go out and proclaim the gospel and gather them into God's kingdom to experience the joys of salvation. And that's true. Very true. But it's really only one side of this harvest image. Because there are plenty of places in the Bible where this idea of harvest is used to describe judgment, to describe separation. It's a judgment, not salvation. So yeah, in Joel chapter 3, Joel chapter 3 from verse 12, God says, uh, Let the nations be roused, let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample her, the grapes. 
for the winepress is full and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. That's a, that's a pretty shocking picture. I find it shocking. The harvest is ripe, the sickle is ready, and, and there are multitudes of people that as things stand will be trampled by God. Trampled for their wickedness, like, like, like grapes in a wine press. And you say, yeah, but that's the Old Testament. Like they're always banging on about judgment in the Old Testament. Like it, it, with Jesus, it's grace, it's mercy, it's pure compassion. Right, but in Matthew 13, Jesus says that one day he will come back as the Lord of the harvest. Lord of the harvest. You can look it up, Matthew 13, parable of the wheat and the weeds. And he says, when I come, I'm going to separate the wheat from the weeds. The wheat are people who are righteous, people who receive eternal life. And the weeds are people who are unrighteous and they'll dry out like chaff and be thrown into the fires, Jesus says. They receive eternal judgment. And so as Jesus looks at the crowds of people, he knows that as things stand, most of them are destined to be trampled. Trampled by God's judgment, like grapes in a wine press, like chaff being thrown into a fire. He feels that reality, the reality of heaven and hell acutely. It shapes everything he does. And so he feels compassion. And now perhaps before you reject this idea that Christ would talk about judgment like this, I do want to remind you that if you're a follower of Christ, you can't just pick and choose which words of his you're going to listen to. Well, you can. I mean, lots of people do that. Uh, but if you do that, uh, you're really not following Christ as he reveals himself by his own words, are you? You're just following your own version of Christ, which is a bit more palatable for some reason. That's not the real Christ. So I, I know this teaching is very hard. I'm not pretending it's not hard. But let me encourage you to not just to reject it, but to wrestle with it. We mustn't lose sight of the fact that as we sit here today, millions of people in our city are destined for God's judgment. We should feel the weight of that reality. Jesus does. That's what drives his compassion. So that's kind of Christ's supernatural awareness of the condition of the lost. It's only really when we have that awareness that we'll be filled with Christ's compassion for the lost. So we do have to pray. Don't we? We have to pray. God's filled us with his spirit. It's the spirit of Christ in us. So let's pray that God would stir up this compassion. It would open our eyes to see the size and the suffering and the destiny of the lost. When that happens will be much more likely to prayerfully commit to the salvation of the lost. That's the connection in this passage, the connection between verses 37 and 38. Right in verse 38, Jesus sees the condition of the lost and he calls his disciples to pray. Ask me. I think Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. Remember Matthew 13, he says, I'm coming back as the Lord of the harvest. So ask me, Jesus is saying, the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers into this harvest field. But if you're aware of the condition of the lost you'll also be aware that we desperately need workers for the harvest field. The need is great. Uh, so we've got to be on our knees, praying that God would send out workers from our church. 
workers being people who are living out and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, just as Jesus was. So let's pray that God would send out Christian students from our church. That's some of you here, into schools, into universities, into colleges. That he would send out Christian business people into the marketplace, into the centres of commerce. That he would send out Christian health professionals we need Christians in, in hospitals and clinics and practices that, that he'd send Christian parents out into creches and playgroups and kinders. That he'd send artists out and, and politicians and, and tradies. That he'd send us all out, as he's already done, right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, to make disciples of all nations. Right? This is Christ's deep compassion for the lost. Now, at this point, I could just say, so be like Christ. You know what I mean? Like, you've seen Christ's compassion, so just just be compassionate. Just be like Jesus. But I don't think that'll work. I don't think it'll work because of where I started. We've all, for all sorts of reasons, some of them more godly than others, we've got compassion fatigue. So we think to ourselves, here we go again, Aaron's going on about saving the lost, about the, the needs of the lost, about, having, uh, about mission, about having compassion for the lost. Uh, and you're kind of like, doesn't Aaron just understand that it was an effort for me to even get to church? I really only came for a rest, for some refreshment, for a bit of a pick-me-up. Don't talk to me about saving the lost. Like, I'm already feeling burdened, don't put another burden on me. I think that's how some, perhaps many of you feel. It's how I've felt when I've heard these kind of sermons. So if that's you, uh, if deep down uh, you you, you do want to save the lost, uh, you want to feel compassion for them, but for all sorts of reasons you're really just burnt out, tired, you need a rest. If that's you, I just want to encourage you to do two things. I want to encourage us to do two things. First, pray. Pray today, pray this week. Make it a, a constant prayer of yours that God would open your eyes to really see the spiritual condition of the lost. Pray that you would see their size, their suffering, their destiny. Pray that by the power of his spirit, your heart would be flooded with deep, uh, the deep compassion of Christ for the lost. Christ who lives in you. Pray, please pray. This is a work of God's spirit. We have to see that when we go around our city, the deepest need is not the bunch of home, the, the, the amount of homeless people. There are a lot more homeless people in the city than when I first moved to Melbourne. That is a great need. That's not the deepest need. The deepest need is people coming home to God, right? But we just don't see it. We need our eyes opened. We must pray. And second, most importantly, we have to remember. Pray and remember. Remember how lost you once were apart from Christ. Remember that at one point you were spiritually poor and helpless and needy. Remember Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see the kingdom of God. This is how the Christian life starts, by acknowledging how broken and needy and poor you are, spiritually speaking. Remember how lost you once were, yet driven by his immense compassion, Christ, your good shepherd, came from heaven and earth to seek you, to save you, to to gather you into God's kingdom, to experience all the joys of salvation. Remember those truths. Remember Christ's incredible compassion to you. And it will change your heart. 
As we pray and remember, I'm hoping, even starting today, as we sing the songs, as we pray together, I'm praying that Christ's deep compassion for us might, might refresh us, might stir our tired hearts, so that we would be filled with Christ's compassion, his deep compassion for the lost. Uh, let me pray. Uh, Grace Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you for your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus and his immense compassion uh, for those who are lost. Uh, that he was willing to come from heaven uh, to earth to seek and to save us, to gather us in, to experience the, uh, the wonderful joys of salvation. Uh, please help us to remember these great truths, uh, to be blown away afresh by your uh, amazing compassion to us in Christ. And I pray that this day, even as we uh, sing these songs, as we uh, share in a time of prayer, that you might refresh uh, some of our hearts that are no doubt tired and fatigued and and needing a rest. Perhaps we've grown indifferent and hard-hearted and just can't be bothered. Please, Father, stir in us by the power of your Spirit. Fill us with your compassion for the lost. Open our eyes to see uh, their size, their suffering, their destiny that we might go out uh, to seek to gather them in uh, to experience the joys of salvation. Amen.